G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one-stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian-owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Abel, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. Hi, uh, I'm Dougal Rillstone. I'm a, um, a fanatical uh, fly fisher. Uh, I live in the far south of uh, the South Island of New Zealand. Um, I have a passion for um, trout and uh, and permit. G'day, Dougal. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, mate. I know I've um, I've been reading your book upstream of the Matara for probably the last month or so, really enjoying it, about three quarters of the way through it. Um, and it's been great to see your journey and um, basically your connection with that river system. I know there's a few rivers that I'm really close to in my heart, so I've really thoroughly enjoyed that um, that story so far. What we might do before we touch on your book, um, we might get a little bit of background information about you. So you were born in 1949 in Gore in the Southland of New Zealand. Um, did you want to speak a bit about growing up in that part of the world? I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I was... Um... As you say, I was born in Gore, which is um, has the Matara River running right through it. I was born really just a stone's throw, literally a stone's throw from the river. And um, in fact, my first journey, it's it, just coincidentally, my mother was telling me uh, three or four years ago that um, when my, my father uh, drove her and myself home as a baby from the, from the hospital, um, we stopped beside the, we crossed the, the bridge in Gore and we stopped beside the river. Um, and um, so it, it, it struck me as um, kind of a lovely coincidence that um, I was uh, I was beside the river on my first journey. So we lived um, in East Gore, a couple of blocks from the Matara River. Um, and down the road from us was the Waikaka Stream, which is a tributary of the, of the Matara. Um, it felt like the center of the universe for me at the time as a as a little person. Uh, of course, it wasn't, but it was um, it was a it was a time of you know adventure. It seemed like a we were on the out on the outskirts of town. It seemed like a wild place, um, surrounded by the Hokanui Hills to the west and some beautiful mountains to the north. And it became over my life very much my uh, landscape of happiness, a place where I I love to be. But the river. The river was important. There's a there's a photograph you may have seen it in my book. Uh, I'm, I'm a one year old, so this is the summer of 1951, probably the late summer of 1950 uh, 51, I guess it was. Um, and uh, I'm up to my shoulders uh, in the river. My father's standing over me, so I'm just a baby. Um, I got a bonnet on my head, and uh, 
it, again, once again, I thought it was a wonderful, a wonderful photograph to have. I, I don't remember that, but it left a, it left a mark on me. Uh, I'm sure it left a mark on me. The river was, we didn't have a car at that stage of our lives and the river was our pool in a way. So we'd walk, uh, the two blocks to the, to the river, uh, just on the north side of Gore. Uh, on those not too common uh, warm evenings in in Southland, and uh, and swim, so it was a swimming pool, um, and so it it was a place of happiness, a place where I went with my family, and my brothers and sister and cousins and so on, and we and and we had friends there, and we leapt off ropes and um, and we swam and. Uh, we saw some amazing things. So I'd been drawn. I think I think that played a part in drawing me back to the river for the rest of my life, really. It was quite uh, pivotal in sort of establishing that uh, connection. I I became so almost obsessed with the river that my, my grandparents lived closer the, to the river than us. They just had the flood bank behind them and a paddock, and then there was the river. And I spent a lot of time with them. And they used to have to tell me all sorts of well-intentioned lies to keep me from disappearing over the flood bank to go down to the river and play. Um, so yeah, I was I was pretty pretty well hooked on the river. Mm. I think it's lucky that you had that um, connection with family and friends as well, because um, then it's not just something that you can enjoy yourself. It's something you've been able to enjoy with your siblings and your parents and your friends. Exactly. So yes, I think it's a good point um, that my connection with the river was really not initially through fishing. It was um, it was just sheer enjoyment of being by the river. A lot of uh, young New Zealanders, Kiwis, uh, live on the coast, and um, for them probably they went to beaches and things like that. But when you're inland, and we felt like we were a long way inland, uh, but not by Australian standards, um, we. Uh, uh, the river was where we went to play, so it was a kind of magical place. And I saw some 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 scenes there, which are still with me. Sort of memories of being in the river in the evening, often when the wind had dropped away, and the pool that we swam in just absolutely dead flat. And about it's hard to know what time, but just as as sun was sort of going down seeing trout starting to rise, presumably taking spinners, mayfly spinners, trout rising everywhere. It was just mesmerizing and you could they were so close you could almost touch them uh, as they as they got into their um into their habits. So um yeah, I have such fond memories of that. Um I also crossed the bridge um several times a, a week and later in my school years uh, every day crossed it many times. And I'd often find myself standing on the bridge in Gore. A lot of uh, Aussie anglers will be familiar with it. And and just looking at the fish down below, uh, a long way down. But um, I don't think there are quite so many in that bridge area uh, today, although there are, there are plenty there. But I, I, would, I could see them behind almost every stone. They were quite small, and I could see them thinning away. And I, I, was, I was captivated by it. Later, I... Um, the first sort of examples I saw of people fly fishing were off that bridge in the evening, watching older men with um, um, probably cane rods, uh, wet fly fishing downstream, throwing their um, throwing their cast across and down, 
and there was something magical about it. And and I still have this vision of every now and again seeing a trout dart out from behind a rock and swing where the where the fly probably was. I couldn't see the fly from the bridge. And then once in a while you would see a trout clearly hooked and spinning and um, flashing in the water. So they were they they are the kind of things that uh, really sort of imprint on your brain and. Uh, and get you totally, uh, totally obsessed with it, really, which is what I became. I, by the time I was uh, nine or ten, um, I could, leading up to the start of the fishing season, I could hardly sleep. I was so excited about getting down to the river to uh, to to fish. And earlier than that, I'd go down to the way, the banks of the Waikaka stream, just just down the road from us. And mostly catch eels there, just with um, twine and uh, rotten meat. And sometimes I had one of those old trident spears that I used, um, would spear the odd uh, eel. And I caught perch. There was some beautiful little um, red perch that um, were there. And it was, um, again, it was sort of a magical place for me. I never saw another person down there. I'd go down there by myself. And I would take um, a sack with me and often bring home three or four eels, which I'd uh, cook on the fire, of, uh, on a fire in our garden and feed them to, to our hens, who, who absolutely loved them and ate, ate the whole lot apart from the bones. So, yeah, it was, uh, I was, it was a lucky life, really, Josh. Yeah, I think um, having experiences like that, like I grew up on a red claw crayfish farm, so we were always surrounded by water and catching little perch and eels and that's the same thing. We used to feed any of the frames to the chooks and they absolutely love it. Mm. And I think it's such a good way to grow up. Um, a lot of my mates that were in town, they were sort of always looking for something to do and always quite bored, whereas on the farm we always had something to do and whether it was with my brother or mum and dad or my cousins, um, just having that freedom, I'm, I'm so lucky to have had that when I was younger. Yeah, exactly. And I look back at it as a kind of, even though it wasn't a, well, it was potentially dangerous. And I think parents today would be, you know, perhaps loathe to let their children get to the river just as early as, as I was allowed to. I was trusted eventually. I think I wore them down, to be honest. Um, but it was, I think, I think young people generally, maybe more boys than, than girls, if I could be sexist about it, need that sense of a wild place, you know, when they, when you're growing up somewhere that's um, kind of challenges you in different ways. So, yeah, it was very important. Do you remember the um, the first time you caught a brown trout? I do. Um, it, it's probably, I think it's the first clear memory I have. It was, um, I was four. So this is about 1953, 54. And, um, we had gone south of Gore with my uncle and auntie and a, a few cousins in uh, my uncle's car. Uh, so it was a bit of a, a special thing to drive. And it felt like a long way down. But in truth, it was probably only about three or four kilometers south of Gore. And I could see still my father and my uncle heading off with their rubber thigh waders and, um, and thread line rods and leaving me with um, my mother and auntie and cousins, mostly female cousins. And I had a little rod and uh, uh, I threaded, I, I was helped to thread a worm onto a hook and threw that out and um, just watch, uh, just absolutely captivated by the seeing the rod tip sort of nodding and eventually grabbing the line and uh, grabbing the, the rod and winding this fish in. 
the drag must have been preset by somebody because I just kept winding. It didn't break off and it came, came to the bank. And it was about, I don't know, it was a good size fish, three or four pound, I think. And I, I, I remember insisting that as I carried on that it was lying on the, on the gravel beside me because I kept it. I couldn't dare put it back. And, and I, I was touching its eye and things like that. And um, later in my life, just after I'd walked up the river, I, uh, uh, I uh, I took two of my grandchildren fishing and on the Matara, and they caught their first trout. One was six, and uh, Dylan was six, and George was uh, eight, I think. And um, I could see in them that same that same excitement when we got the fish ashore, and they they just had to carry them around, and uh, and you know something not the way to handle a fish, and not what I do anymore, but with for children. And young people getting involved, it, it was just a one. It was a wonderful thing to see their excitement again. So yeah, but so that was my first. That was my first one. Hmm. And then when did you actually start picking up the fly rod? Was that later years in life, or when you were relatively young? It it was a bit later. Uh, I so I worm fished for um, for the first four or five years, and once again, it was I would I would fish even before school. So I'd, I'd get up and. Uh, bike around the corner, meet a friend, and we'd go across to the river. It would only take us about 15 minutes at the most. Get there early, often frosty in October and November, and um, catch a fish or two and, uh, and, and cycle home. So I, I, I mostly worm fish for, until perhaps I was uh, nine or ten. Um, the, the beauty of that was we would we'd set up our rods and throw a worm into the current, and they can go and do other things, you know, look for birds' nests and all sorts of all sorts of carry on. But um, I had one of my uncles was a threadline fisherman. You know, he cast um, a little threadline rod, cast metal lures out, and I kind of liked that. And I, I like watching them, and it seemed like a nice thing to do to be able to walk up the river. So I joined him, and I started. I'd go out with him a bit and um, and threadline fish, and I did that probably well that overlapped the start of my fly fishing i probably picked up a fly rod first it's hard to know exactly um, i was probably 12 or 13 i didn't have any um tuition i was really going on on a sort of vision of the guys that i saw fishing off the bridge there was a tackle store in town smith and rainsford's and i had saved up enough money to buy a cheap uh, cane rod from them and I had neighbours, two houses up from us, um, Mr. and Mrs. Cunningham. They came out from Scotland and he was a fly fisher. And he talked to me about fly fishing. And he gave me some flies. He had this beautiful little um, fly holder where they were all these pages, felt pages almost with the wet flies uh, in them. So it was, I loved just watching them and flicking through them and so on. So I swung wet flies um, in the Matara probably as a 12-year-old. Um, and I did that um, overlapping with uh, threadline fishing until I left Gore when I was um, just about to turn 18 and went to university. Yeah. I think having that um, starting off bait fishing, I think there's a lot to be learned from that. Like I know when I was young, sort of two, three-year-old, I was chasing whiting down the beach with my granddad, chasing them on bait, and I think there's a lot of people that start out just fly fishing and they've missed a lot of those mm -hmm. fundamental steps. 
Um, and I think there's a lot to be said about, yeah, starting with the basics and progressing from there because you learn feeding habits and presentation and all that sort of thing. Um, so I'm definitely glad that I started bait fishing and then sport fishing before I progressed into fly fishing. Exactly. No, I, I think you're, you're, and I'm facing that with my grandchildren. It would be, it would be great to get them, to get a fly rod in their hands, but I, I think it's too early. I think they would, uh, they could be put off the whole process. They need to find a way into the excitement of catching fish and being by the river or by the sea and, um, and, and get excited by that first. And then um, you, there's time to go fly fishing because it, in some ways it's, um, I think it's a more wonderful way to fish, but it's, it's, it's a bit more challenging and, and, um, and it can put people off. I know the first, the first uh, year or two that I fly fished, um, I didn't catch many fish. So the temptation was to put the fly rod down and um, get out the three line rod. And it, I didn't really improve as a fly fisher until one day I thought, I'm just going to give up on my three-line rod. And uh, I haven't used it since, apart from helping the grandchildren. Yeah, I certainly know myself these days. Like if I get the opportunity, I'll pick up the fly rod first before anything. But um, yeah, it's definitely good to be able to be a fairly well-rounded angler, I guess. And as you said, it is good with the kids just to get them excited on fishing to start with because... I think a lot of people need to find fly fishing themselves. They don't need it to really be forced upon them. Um, it just needs to be a natural progression where they've got the excitement and they're, I guess they're um, a bit curious about what fly fishing is. And I think if they can find that themselves without being uh, having it shoved down their throat, it's probably the best way to do it. Yeah. And I think the other advantage of uh, starting the way I did is that um, I don't... Uh, I don't look down on people who fish other ways. You know, I, I, I love fly fishing now, um, but I understand the pleasure that people can get by fishing in other ways. So I don't, uh, I don't recoil when I see somebody worm fishing on the river. I, um, I know my, um, my uncle Ernie, who I fished with for much of my life, and um, his later years, he, he went back to, to fishing the worm. He, would, he was happy to have my auntie drive him to the river. He'd sit on a chair and he'd watch, uh, he'd watch his rod with a worm on the end of it because at the end of it, he just wanted to be by the river. And I think that's it. It's being engaged with the outdoors and it's I'd rather see someone worm fishing down the river than being glued to their phone, just sitting there doing nothing. Or um, It's just that whole outdoor experience, really. For sure. Mm. So, and then so with university, was it Dunedin that you moved to for uni? I, I did too. I went to, I went to the University of Otago. I, I was thinking I would I would stay in South and my father uh, had died uh, just that year. He was just forty one, and I thought, being the oldest in the family, um, that I probably would need to stay at home and uh, and work in the south. So I was looking to finish school a year early, and I'd applied for a couple of jobs. Oddly enough, one was as a copywriter for a radio station in Invercargill, so it was nearby, and another job at a at a Grasslands Research Institute and a wise uncle of mine who lived in Matara itself um, uh, we, we, I was accepted for both jobs on the same day and I wasn't sure what to do and my uncle came up and he said look your mum will be fine you, can, you should go to university and I did and it was again one of those absolutely pivotal sort of moments um, in my life uh, and uh, uh, yeah so uh, that's that's how I headed away, and I studied economics at Otago, 
uh, in the at a time when just passing was good enough. You know, that nowadays you have to uh, strive for spectacular marks and things like that. But it was uh, it was a more pleasure pleasurable experience when I went to university. Not so many people did go. Um, uh, and I, w- I worked reasonably hard because I felt like I had an obligation, you know, not to not to fall around too much. So my fishing was a little bit on hold when I was at university. Um, although it, it probably won't surprise you to know that my girlfriend at the time, her parents lived on a farm uh, north of Riversdale, and um, and when I spent time with them, that was right beside the river again. So I was I was pretty close to the river all those all those years. Mm. Was that part of the criteria when you met her? They had to have a property near the water? Or? No, it, was, it was just a happy accident, really. Yeah, yeah, it was a happy accident. Yeah, yep. And so what happened once you finished university? Well, my first job was actually back right beside the Matara. Um, I, I worked briefly at the Matara paper mills, so I went back south. I stayed with my, uh, my mother and then stepfather. And uh, I worked uh, at the paper mills. I'd have my lunch uh, often on the on the banks of the river, by the, right by the Matara Falls, which are cut off to most people. But it is the most spectacular sort of geological feature on the whole river. The river drops quite a long way, um, and um, I uh, I was there for about eighteen months, and um, I saw a lot of trout um, during my lunch hours making miraculous uh, leaps up the falls and so on. But I, I was lured away and I went to Auckland um, where I was a fund manager, for a, became a fund manager eventually for a, a large insurance company. And, um, and they sent me to England where I worked uh, for them looking after their international portfolios in, in London. Um, and I was there. I was away for about five years, and it was not really a time when people travel. It was traveling was expensive, uh, relatively expensive. So I didn't get back to New Zealand in that time. I missed the fishing dreadfully, um, and I saw. I spent a little bit of time up in Scotland, and I looked at those wonderful rivers, and I saw people fishing in rivers that were familiar to me as rivers that I would like to fish in. But I realized pretty quickly that these were not rivers that I could afford to. Fish in because they're um, it's a privileged thing in the UK and it really was driven home to me how fortunate we are to be able to have this wonderful public fishing if you like um, so that was a factor I I was um, uh, one day one Saturday morning in London my wife was in a shop and I was standing on a footpath dodging a, a mass of people going past thinking this is not where I want to be. Um, and I applied for a job back in the in the far south, and I got it, and I've been here ever since. Yeah, okay. And does your wife Sue? Does she fly fish as well, or she does a little bit? Um, uh, she uh, and she was actually rather good, and she's caught bonefish, and she's uh, she's caught uh, her fair share of trout. But um, in recent years, she really has struggled with the idea of. Um, of handling fish and and um, and sort of worrying about their well-being and so on, and I, I I get that. You know, as I've got older, I I share some of those concerns as well about doing the right thing by this beautiful quarry that we have. Uh, so she doesn't much, but she's uh, an incredible supporter of uh, of my fishing. Yeah, and I guess as fly fishers, we have a responsibility to look after the fisheries and the fish. Um, so it it is a good way to be. Yeah, 
just that awareness later, it, certainly through most of my life, but increasingly, um, I'm, you know, I, I'm very careful about um, uh, hand, the way fish are handled, and um, I find it much less easy to, um, to to keep the odd fish. I do once in a while, but not not very often. <clears throat> so conscious of just uh, um, yes, the way the way the fish are treated, critical really. And over the years, you would have seen changes in the river with um, agriculture and water quality and that sort of thing. How do you think it's um, shaping up at the moment, the Matara and a lot of the streams? And uh, Well, it's, it's good and bad. Um, on balance, you'd have to say there's been a sort of a general uh, deterioration. Um, it's not, it hasn't happened everywhere. But the good, the good news is the point discharges into the Matara, for example, um, the river that is uh, dearest to me, have, have reduced enormously. When I was a kid, um, the raising works at Matara, the paper mill, the township of Gore and Matara, and all the other towns on the river just pumped their raw waste into into the river. So it was by, by the late 60s, the, the lower river in particular was pretty messy. It was not a, it was not a pretty sight. There was some... Um, there was some very good fly fishing down there, but it was uh, aesthetically, it left quite a lot to be desired. Now, much of that point discharge has been tidied up. Um, it's down to maybe 5% of what, it, of what it used to be. So that's good. Um, on the negative side, um, the intensification of agriculture has been um, a, a problem. Uh, the The switch from sheep farming, which was uh, prevalent when I was a young person in Southland, to dairying um, has been extraordinary. And with in the early days, dairying was also a reasonably low intensive activity, not much um, um, synthetic nitrogen used on the land. Um, but that changed. Uh, and there's been a, a massive increase in the amount of nitrogen and, and fertilizers generally and chemicals that have been sprayed on the land. And in some places, that's impacting, particularly on some of the smaller streams. Uh, uh, the, the main river itself is still the, both the Matara and the Waikaya, for example, and many of the other rivers that I know in the area pretty well. Um, are still pretty good. They're holding uh, a lot of trout, um, and the bottom is is mostly pretty clean. But the the future is a bit of a worry unless we unless we get on top of uh, on top of some of these issues. Um, I I was uh, a councillor on the old acclimatisation society and then fish and game uh, for the region um, when I was a younger person. And we, we worked very hard to, to try and stop some of those, some of those changes. Um, we, we were successful, along with the South and Fish and Game people, to get a national conservation order on the Matara, which has given it a measure of protection. But there's something insidious about the sort of um, uh, runoff of fertilizer that, comes, uh, that gets into the, into the river at times. But I know a lot of farmers, and I know most of them, are, um, are trying hard uh, to to um, look after the stream. So I, I also see uh, much more riparian um, uh, protection, uh, fencing uh, stock out of the river. So when you walk the Matara, as I did, um, 
the, the great bulk of it now is uh, is fully fenced off. So what that leaves is a bit of a jungle between the uh, between the fence and the river itself. But um, uh, it's 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 a good start. But we need to do better. Um, some 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 uh, reduction in the amount of fertilizers, in particular, in in certain parts of the catchment, uh, is necessary. I think, and uh, we'll probably move in that direction over time. And I guess that's the problem as um, with development going forward. Places like even over in Florida, you look at all the glyphosates that end up in the water and all the extra nitrogen, and it is pretty scary what's getting leached into our waterways. But um, as fishers and as yeah, as people, we just need to make sure that we're conscious of what we're putting into our gardens and what we're putting into our waterways so that we can ensure a healthy fishery for future generations. Yeah, that's right. I think it, 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 there's, a, there's an individual responsibility, but it's primarily, I think, a responsibility of, of, the, of the, um, the industries in particular that are really um, involved in, in the major activities. Um, and uh, I think they're aware of it. I see, I see the, lead, the, the big dairy companies, are, they understand that ultimately their customers start demanding that uh, the suppliers meet uh, ever-increasing environmental standards. I think it's the way of the future. So I'm, I, I've been disappointed in some of the things that have happened, but I'm not without hope. Um, I have, though, seen uh, a couple of my favourite small streams that run into the Matara. One was a spring creek or is a spring creek, and the other was a, mu- a beautiful little stream that ran out, out of the Hokanui Hills, the Otomita, which I thought was one of the finest early season streams that could exist on the planet. Uh, but um, both of them have really suffered by intensification of agriculture and uh, plowing out of tussocks and um, um, tile drains and things like that. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but let's not lose hope, Josh. Yeah. And I guess too, New Zealand, like um, fly fishing, is such a draw card for tourists there that like you really need to sort of look after those waterways because otherwise you won't have the people coming to enjoy it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And there'll be there'll be pressure there. And and uh, and already you see you see articles written by by people that have come here to fish, uh, expressing their disappointment at what they see, and uh, quite rightly so. But still, a pretty it's a pretty fine place to catch trout. I got to say. You would have um, definitely noticed over the COVID years and that sort of thing with a, um, a lack of tourist pressure and that sort of thing, the fishing on the river would have been incredible. Yes, it was. I mean, just the lack of people, um, it made a difference. Although, you know, I've modified where I go over the last few years and, and find myself not very often confronting other anglers. It's a sort of a rare day for me to see another angler. I know some of my mates don't feel that, but um, but that's meant staying away from parts of the river that are um, have become very popular. And they were the parts, like the very upper Matara, for example, which I love. You know, it's one of the most aesthetically beautiful places. The fish are gorgeous, but it's close to Queenstown. It's close to the airport. And it's where a lot of people uh, who fly into the country want to go fishing. But for me, it was a bit of a two-edged sword because, I mean, I travel to fish, so I I can't be um, – I, I need to acknowledge that as well. And I couldn't get away. For three years, I was uh, – my passion for permit uh, was on hold because I couldn't get away overseas. Um, I did briefly make it to Australia when we had a bubble to Australia, but that got closed and I had a, an enforced stay. Yeah. 
And when did you start doing a bit of um, competition fishing on the trout side of things? Look, it was a very brief period of my life. Um, it was um, late 90s and we were looking to perhaps move to the Wanaka region and I realised I hadn't fished much in lakes and I thought I would uh, uh, meet up with some people who were fishing in lakes in that part of the world and they just ran a few competitions. Uh, two or three, I think I entered two or three and one of them was a competition that um, led to the selection of a New Zealand fly fishing team that went to the Oceania fly fishing champs in Australia and somehow uh, I fished well enough to get across um, for that and I arrived and we were staying in um, at um and I realised there were a bunch of very keen people uh, there and I, I arrived with a pile of books to read and thought this would be pretty cool 10 days away and realised it was uh, it was people were taking it very seriously and I got uh, I got into gear and uh, the team that I was in actually won that competition and I won the individual uh, title. So, and, and at that point I thought I've done enough of this. Um, I, I, I pulled out while I was ahead. I learned a lot. I loved, I, there was a, there were things about it that I really enjoyed. It, it, I had to hone my skills quite a lot, but I see now these uh, younger competition fishers are just fantastic uh, anglers. Um, but I'm looking for something slightly different in my angling now. It's, um, I'm not uh, um, uh, certainly so obsessed with numbers of fish and things like that. It's, a, it's more of a total experience that keeps me going back to the river. And with your writing, I, um, I mentioned earlier about your book Upstream on the Matara. When did you first start writing? Like, was it for, um, for magazines? Like, I know that you've contributed to Fly Life here in Australia, Wilderness in New Zealand, and then um, Grey Sporting Journal and Midcurrent in the United States. So when did you first start putting pen to paper? Is it something you've always done? Or? No, it's not. I mean, I've been a reader all of my life. So, and, and I think, I've, yes, I've read a lot, and quite a lot of it's around fishing, but mostly it's not. It's about, you know, just good literature. I've... I, Right from high school, I like reading um, uh, good stuff. Um, uh, but and and I knew writers. I was uh, two or three of my friends are, um, are poets and, and writers, and that set a sort of a daunting standard for me. So I didn't uh, feel that I had took in those early years to um, uh, to to be to call myself somebody who could write write articles. But around maybe 15 years ago, uh, possibly even slightly longer ago, I thought I'd give it a go. I, I had a bit more time um, and I, I sent off a piece to uh, Rob Sloan at Fly Life. And he, um, he was very encouraging and uh, published then a number of stories uh, that I sent uh, their way. And I chose Fly Life because I thought I'd, I'd been a subscriber for some time and I, I thought they kept a pretty damn high standard. And if I could be accepted by Fly Life, that would be something I'd like to do. So it was an enormous thrill to me to be published by Fly Life. And then I extended extended beyond that or just into other, other areas. I didn't really write for New Zealand uh, uh, publications at all, really. Um, uh, so that's how that's how I that's how I started, uh, Josh. Mm. And how did you get into um, writing for Grey Sporting Journal and Midcurrent in the states? Was that just something like as you went on from there, or 
it was really. I, I had begun what I thought might be a collection of stories about the Matara River and its tributaries. So this was um, about um, probably 2013, 14. I started thinking I should uh, begin a collection of stories that might form something that could be, I, I, I don't think I dared to think it might be a book, but something like that. And um, one of the stories that I wrote for, called Fortune Creek, I thought, you know, that's the kind of story that might appeal to Greys. I was a subscriber of Greys, and I liked what they did, which was essentially they they took um, submissions. They said everything was read. It was sent to a reader's panel um, with no names of the authors attached. So they were, they were read blind, if you like. They didn't know whether you were John Girac or whoever. Um, they might commission the odd person, but by and large, they said they didn't. Um, and I'd read somewhere that just getting a rejection letter was was good for the process. Uh, and Grace said that they replied maybe to three or four um, percent, uh, sometimes encouragingly, and they published about one percent of what they got. And so I was utterly thrilled when I when I saw an email from them. Uh, it was actually while I was walking up the river, um, and my wife said uh, we were we were staying in Garston at a little camp beside the river that evening, and I said, oh, "I've got an email from Grays," and I could just read a little bit, which said, "We we really like your story." And um, so she said, "You've got to open it." And uh, I said, oh, "Look, I think I'll leave it till I've finished my walk." And uh, but she uh, opened it while I was out of the room, and uh, I could see she was smiling. And uh, so that was again a big thrill to be published by somebody like uh, like Gray's, and it gave me the confidence really to to push on. Uh, and I've been doing, uh, I've been uh, going to writing courses for about um, maybe five years or so with a very good bunch of people and a. And an outstanding teacher who's well published herself, a poet and a novelist, and a memoirist, and um, they were really encouraging and helpful. So um, yeah, that's that's how that whole thing progressed. Yeah. And is that something you'd suggest for somebody that would like to get into writing to um, seek out a, a teacher or a course or something like that to improve their skills? I, I would absolutely, uh, because I must say the first couple of articles I wrote for Fly Life, I thought they were pretty good, you know. But looking at them later, you realise uh, just how much better they could be with a bit of with a bit of um, additional training and knowledge and thought, really, um, and exposing your work to other people. That's that was the real benefit of having other people read your work. It's a slightly humbling thing to do later in your life, in particular, having people. Uh, like or be critical of what you what you put up, but it is a way of of getting better. And uh, yes, I would thoroughly uh, recommend that. And just um, you know, write from the heart, and um, um, and um, and hopefully find somebody like Rob Sloan or people of that sort who who might, even if they don't publish your first story, give you some advice about um, the direction you might take. Uh, it, uh, mostly, people are helpful. Yeah, get that constructive criticism. Yeah, it's absolutely important, even if you don't want to hear it all the time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And who would you say would be some of the um, the writers that have inspired you over your writing career? Well, I mean, 
I suppose uh, the sort of reading I did in my early years were more people that were writing how to fish stories, books on on how to catch fish. And I was a bit obsessed with them for a while, but I don't, I wouldn't call them people that perhaps inspired me to write about fishing. Um, the kind of um, Thomas McGuane, uh, some of those early American uh, writers, um, uh, Jim Harrison, McGuane, um, Robert Travers, uh, Ted Leeson, people writing not about how to catch fish, but about the experience of fishing and the the awe and the joy and the beauty of it, really. And um, uh, another guy that um, a New Zealand angler introduced me to uh, five or six years ago, Ted Middleton, who not well known, but he wrote uh, wrote some beautiful stories on on fishing and 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 a, and a fishing life. Um, of course, Norman McLean, A River Runs Through It, sort of a memoir, really, uh, about people and fishing and the beauty of fly casting. Norman McLean, uh, some of his descriptions of, um, of of casting and so on are just so memorable. Um, so I'd rate him right up there. I, I, I enjoy uh, John Girac and a couple of those English and Scottish writers. Um, uh, John Ingalls Hall, who wrote uh, Fishing a Highland Stream. Um, they were they were books I liked. The, the folk looking at um, particular rivers and uh, and so on. So yeah, they were the. They were, I'm sure I've missed out some very good people. Um, I, I've enjoyed. I've, I've got a good mate down south who, uh, Dave Witherow, wrote a wrote a, a book with some very fine pieces in it about uh, about fly fishing. Um, I, I uh, when I got into saltwater fly fishing, uh, Peter Morse mentioned. Uh, Peter Morse had that uh, lovely little book, um, uh, just simply titled, I think maybe Fly Fishing in Saltwater, and um, in Australia and. Uh, I thought that was the bee's knees for a while. I just uh, got so much out of it. Uh, but that was more of a how-to-do-it kind of book. Mm. Yeah. I guess um, in Australia, people like Peter Morse and Rod Harrison and Dean Butler, guys like that, they really, um, with the saltwater side of things and because of how diverse our fishery is, they've inspired quite a few people to pick up a, um, a fly rod and target more that more so just then um, trout and that sort of thing and basically showed that anything's achievable really with the fly rod. Well, exactly. Uh, when I started uh, subscribing to Fly Life magazine, I was one of those guys who flicked past the saltwater pages uh, pretty much as quickly as I could. They, they really didn't hold any great interest to me. Although I had been to the Florida Keys once in 99 and fished for tarpon, and it was pretty memorable experience. But after my first couple of trips uh, up Cape York, I was... Um, I was. I became an avid reader of uh, everything in fly life, not just the not just the trout stories. Mm. Yeah, mm. and so you started going to Cape York and fishing with um, Alan Phyllis Kirk up there. Was it around mm. twenty years ago? Yeah. Yep. Um, I think it was twenty years ago, almost exactly. And apart from the COVID years, we've been back um, ever since, and uh, um, it's been an extraordinary experience. I've. I just. Um, I've grown to absolutely love that landscape up there, that coastal landscape. The last few years we've been camping our way north of Marpoon and um, it's been um, just an extraordinary experience, really. 
just as a place to be, let alone to catch fish. But the whole experience was um, pretty special. We, when we went there first, um, of course, we, I, I, I had read McGuane stories about permit, but they weren't on my mind. And, you know, to be honest, I wasn't equipped to be a permit fisherman in those days. I just needed to get some, some um, kilometres under my belt catching all sorts of fish. So those first few years, we were catching almost anything that would grab a fly from tunas and queenies and goldies and a, and a myriad of other, of, of other fish and learning a lot about um, handle, uh, fighting fish and, uh, and casting and tough conditions and things like that. And I've got to say, I learned a huge amount uh, from uh, Fish Phyllis Kirk, uh, who was kind of tough taskmaster, taskmaster uh, can be quite gruff and direct. I can recall, I think it was the second trip up there, and we'd had we'd had a great day catching um, a few tuna. And um, Fish said, uh, he said, you know, Dougal, you're one of the best casters I've had on the front of my boat. And then there was just a, a slight pause who can't double haul. And um, <laughs> he put me... <laughs> so that was the kind of... Um, uh, tuition I got from uh, Fish. He was um, at times it could be challenging, and uh, sometimes I didn't want to hear it. But I, looking back, it was uh, incredibly helpful. So I, I owe him a lot. Mm. So you'd say that Fish started your obsession with permit? Yeah, well, I, it was with Fish when I caught my first permit, and uh, it seemed like a bit of a dream. Really, I'd been catching the odd blue bastard, and. Uh, and uh, I don't think I'd really caught many permit up there at all at that stage. This might have been about 08. And recall, I think the first one that was caught on fly was perhaps 99 by fish on that um, uh, wild fish program or whatever it was. Um, and we just stumbled across a, um, a group that stayed together for long enough for me to get a cast in and finally uh, hooked up on one. And, and um it, uh, it sort of changed my life in a way. At, at times, I um, I wonder whether it was a good thing because it can become and has become something of an obsession. Hmm. What was the um, fly that you caught your first one on? Was it American or something like that or a shrimp fly? Or? No, we had time to put a crab on. So you had, uh, had a little crab. Um, and uh, But the whole thing, it was a bit like the first trout I ever caught. It was seemed almost unreal at the time as we as we were heading back to Weeper, thinking I caught a, I actually caught a permit. It seemed uh, it seemed impossible, and uh, yeah, so that was cool. What do you think um, gets you most excited about permit? Is it the places that permit fishing takes you, or is it the difficulty of actually catching them? Or it's I, you know I've had to think about this quite a lot because with permit fishing, as you're probably aware. Um, you get a lot of thinking time because um, there's a lot of looking and uh, not much casting because on a good day you might get um, you know, eight or ten shots. So that's a and, and I tend not to cast at anything else now. So there'll be there'll be some beautiful fish swimming by that I don't want to put my fly anywhere near because um, it could uh, it could interrupt um, catching a permit if one if if one came along. Yeah, I like that. Um, I like the challenge uh, that going as close to the edge of impossibility as you can get, because it's a kind of a fly fishing for them 
using artificial flies is a is a kind of a crazy thing. I mean, an easy way to catch they're, they're easy to catch on a live crab. And the first one I ever caught, which I don't count, was in the Florida Keys, and it was on a live crab, and it was a good sized permit on that trip that I did in '99. And I saw just how readily that big permit leapt on that live crab, and um, and they're not like that with a um, with a fly on the flats. And uh, yeah, so I love, I just love how demanding it is, and I like the places it takes me, and it's just such an um, awesome experience, really. Um, looking into the water, having an excuse to look into that stunning water for hours on end. Now, it's not everybody's cup of tea, and I wouldn't recommend it to everybody, but um, uh, I'm uh, I'm pretty much obsessed with it. Yeah, and you've been lucky enough to catch the um, the Block Eye, Anak, and the Atlantic permit now, so you've pretty much just got the, um, the Africanus to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, I... I um, I think it was Fish was telling me one day, I, I because I'd been to, I was just lucky enough, it might have been 2014, I'd been over in Exmouth and uh, caught, an, caught a uh, block eye over there, and I'd caught that same year a um, an anic uh, several with Fish, and um, and I was, I'd been in Belize as well, or Cuba, and caught a uh, Falcatus, and he said, oh, you've got all three in one year, so that was kind of cool. Uh, I'd like to get to Oman maybe one day. They they look such a different kind of permit though. They they jump and they um they almost like a pelagic uh, sort of species of permit, like <laughs> Yeah. They feed in quite a different way. And one of the things I like about the Anik and the Block Eye and the Falcatus is that um I like fishing for them when they come up onto the flats so that it's relatively shallow water and they're um they're looking for food in that shallow water. But I see I see film out of Oman, and and they could argue, I suppose, that that's what they're doing when they're um, when they're messed up on those uh, on those rocks, uh, feeding uh, under on the base of the cliffs and so on. Um, but yeah, what would you say over the years chasing permit your top three permit flies would be? Yeah, well, you know, it it varies. What I've realised is uh, permit fishing is. Uh, so different in different places. So in Belize, for example, um, it's in t- totally different to the kind of permit fishing I do in Australia. And there, um, it's a tiny little um, fly. I'm trying to even think of the name of it, but it's it is it is a crab imitation, but it's nothing like the sort of crab imitation you you would use, say, in the Florida Keys or Australia. And it's one often uh, fishing in lagoon areas where, the, where you've got a muddy bottom. So it's a fly that drops onto the onto the muddy bottom and just flicks up a bit of mud as you as you move it along, and that's that's what attracts the the fish. Um, in in Cuba, mostly I've fished the Avalon fly there because that's kind of what they what they want you to fish because the uh, and the permit there are mostly on the back of rays, the permit that I've caught in Cuba. And um, and it's been the Avalon fly um, stripped slowly in front of in front of them. So the, this is not uh, a fly that's fished on the bottom in in a place like Cuba. The permit will be sitting often a meter or two back behind the rays. If you're lucky, there'll be a couple there, and uh, they're looking to pick up stuff that the rays maybe chase off. So it's more of a shrimp fly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, in in up in Cape York, it's mostly been um, it's mostly been the crab crab pattern but 
um, up there, uh, the great bulk of the fish I've caught have been midwater. So these are not fish that are feeding on the bottom necessarily. Some of them are, but catching them mid-column as the fly sinks down through them, um, if there's a group of them, or sometimes, most commonly, taking taking a fish that's um, moving uh, mid midwater or, or almost right at the surface, you know, pushing a bow wave and uh, getting a cast in front of it and um, and tightening up if you're lucky. And Exmouth is different again. It's more like the Florida Keys, where they um, they really are focused on picking stuff off off the bottom. And um, my experience with Brett Wolf recently was such that you know if you didn't have it right on the bottom and staying on the bottom, they didn't they didn't want a bar of it. Yeah, so something fairly heavily weighted, and they seem to favour the yellow legs over there, like a lot of the moon crabs and. Yeah, yeah, certainly up in Cape York, uh, uh, that's the uh, that's the case. But you you kind of get into a, into into a um, a habit really of things that you feel confident about. I still think that in almost every place, a good cast, a really good presentation, and the way the fly moves, whether it's staying on the bottom or the way you move it mid water and and don't let it kind of rise in front of the fish but allow that slow sink to continue and get it in the right place in front of the fish so they see it um that i think that's more important personally than the than the pattern is i take a good cast uh, over a pattern any day i know talking to um i'm good mates with yeah bargy and kurt rollins and drew bolton up there at fishers flying sport fishing and weeper and Every time I talk to them, it's pretty much yeah, any advice for anyone going up there would be practice your casting, practice casting in the wind. And if you have to, like with a slightly heavier fly than you might be used to, because um, the amount of times that you could have a, a shot and if you can't make the cast, it's absolutely wasted. So It is. No, I, I think it's great advice. Um, I think casting, casting is everything and being able to do it re- relatively quickly and uh, in windy conditions with some accuracy is what you've got to do. So, I mean, I don't have access to the sea where I live here. Well, I do. I, I live in Dunedin, but it's a cold ocean. And the, um, But I, I, I practice uh, regularly before I go. I'll start uh, five or six weeks out from a trip and try and put in three or four days a week at least of uh, good sessions and and not just picking calm days and and um, trying to do it as quickly as I can, casting two targets uh, and just rotating around a clock, if you like. And um, uh, and it's never quite good enough. It's not it's not quite the same as being on the front of a boat with the way you've got the boat moving and so on. But you do have so many things to consider that. As a trout fisherman, I tend not to have to think about because often the boat is moving, um, there's a current, um, and the fish is moving fast. At least trout often in a river uh, tend to stay still. Uh, The river's doing all the moving, and they're holding in position, so you get a chance to creep up behind them, change flies, and and so on. If you're careful, you might get quite a few shots, but often with permit, I find um, uh, they are there, and then they're gone. And if you haven't been able to get that fly out pretty quickly, um, then you're um, then you're in trouble. You, you, um, so yeah, casting, car, it's all about casting, I think. Yeah, and, I think that's the main thing I've noticed fishing with other people on a boat. You can have a great park cast, but once you get out there on a flat, 
if you can't get the fly in front of the fish with minimal false cast, a lot of the time they're already gone. So exactly, and I think you want to, you, if if you possibly can, you need a back cast because um, in in Florida and places like that, the guides uh, who are polling can sometimes um, maneuver the boat to give you to give you a, a more of a forehand sort of a cast in almost all circumstances. But in Australia and uh, in Belize, where they're, they're running bigger um, bigger pangers and things like that, they're not so manoeuvrable. So a fair number of the shots are presented on the backhand. And if you can't get a backhand shot at them, you might be missing out on a third of the potential shots that are available to you. And, you know, when you consider that might be only five or eight or ten in a day, um, that's uh, that's a big loss because I think you you probably need it seems to me eight or ten good shots to catch a permit you know it's something like that that's the sort of equation because they they can be just damn difficult and um, sometimes they uh, they don't take a great cast but you normally know when you've made a, a really good cast the odds of, of that fish eating go up a great deal um, and you and, and sometimes that cast has to be quite stealthy, you know, not banging it in. But um, I had a couple with uh, Brett Wolf recently where the, it was, they were close in and we were sort of crouched down trying not to be seen, very much like trout fishing, if you like, and, and kind of lobbing just a quiet lob of a short cast, only maybe, you know, 25, 30 feet. So you've... You, um, the easy thing on a park is to get out there and cast uh, 60 and 70 and get in a groove on that and feel like, oh, yeah, that's great. And there's a good feel about the rod loading on at 50 and 60 and 70 and sometimes 80 feet. It doesn't feel so comfortable at 20 feet. Um, but sometimes that's what you have to do because a permit will just come out of nowhere at you and you see it late and it's close to the boat and you have to be able to uh, get a cast even if it looks a bit ugly. So, um, yeah, lots of challenges. Do you find yourself using like a 9-weight or a 10-weight? or? I use uh, – I've got two 10-weight rods that I take with me and um, I've used 10-weights for a while. I think they, they work um, well in the wind and um, – and the, the ten weights that I use are um, they they'll load up reasonably close in, but they but they're good further out as well. You want a rod that it will at least load close in because, um, uh, as I say, some of the shots need, are that close. I have a a, a good friend who's a who's a fabulous uh, permit fisherman from Argentina, and and Carlos uh, says he doesn't like taking shots beyond about 50 feet because he said you can't you can't read the fish so well you can't um, watch its behavior look at that sort of quiver when it tips up on the fly or look at its and see its mouth move when it sucks that fly in and and i think he's right at, at 70 and 80 feet sometimes you've got to be out there but it's it's hard to know when they've taken the fly um, and and quite often you miss them because they get it in and they get it out so fast yeah. I've seen I've I've seen a fly sucked in from, I would have thought, um, um, like a quarter of the, a, quite a bright yellow crab fly. I was using one or bright yellow legs, and I was, I was with Bargy up in Cape York, and we were both looking at a, a group of um, a few permit uh, in the water column, 
and I could see my fly very carefully, uh, very, very easily sinking towards them. And a permit came up towards it and stopped maybe um, 30 centimetres away, you know, like a, I'm more comfortable in feet, you know, it was like a, a foot or two away and stopped and just saw its mouth move and the fly disappeared at a pace that you couldn't see it disappear. And uh, it was like magic. And I just tightened immediately and it was on and the fish hadn't moved forward. It just sucked it from, sucked it from that kind of distance. So they can move quite a lot of water through their, um, through their gills and so on to, to grab that fly. And um, so you've got to be so fast. Um, Have you had much um, experience with chasing them on floating crab flies at all? Or? Um, yeah, n- not much. Uh, in, in the Bahamas, I uh, used a, um, a floating fly on uh, a, a couple of permit that was sitting on a ray. And the first one, they were both big permit. And the guide said, look, if you want to try that uh, floating fly, now's the time. So we had one on my other rod. My friend Carlos had given me uh, one of his flies, quite a big gurgler kind of pattern. Uh, and I uh, plopped that on top of the ray and the first permit came off the bottom like a rocket and hit it and the the fly went sailing through the air and uh, the permit missed it because they, they have a tendency to push it away as they try and grab it off the surface. They can't, not too easy for them to suck it in. And I was kind of dumbfounded and the guide said get it back in there the other fish are still there and so I fired it in and the other fish came up and smacked it and I had it on for five seconds and and it came off and I've also fished for them without success although I got close in Belize where they where the crabs were at a certain tide um, coming out of the mangroves and swimming across and jumping onto a leaf and riding a leaf uh, down th- towards the uh, the open sea, and the permit was sitting in this um, in this channel like trout uh, taking dry flies, and they would they would swim up behind the leaf, and if the leaf wasn't quivering, you could just see them turn away, and if the leaf had a quiver as though there was something on top of it, they would whack it and eat the uh, crab off the top, um, and I only got couple of casts and the wind came up and it all conditions changed so um yeah that's the limit of my experience there mm. and you've got a pretty impressive tally permit wise. now you're into the 70s if it is it? sort of yeah more, more than my age uh, i thought for a while that uh, with COVID, i would uh, i was going to lose uh, lose to that but yeah no i've caught i've caught a i've caught a, a goodly number um never enough you know the thing is with them that um uh, if I if I haven't caught one for a couple of days, I start to feel like I may never catch another one. You know, they're um, I've never been complacent about them at all. And uh, uh, my recent trip with in, in Exmouth was uh, I had um, I got one on the first day, which felt pretty good, and then I had a couple of days where I I couldn't get one, and I thought, wow, I wonder if I'll ever catch one again. Will I ever feel a permit on the end of the line? And then and then and then we did. So. Um, Hmm. Have you um, chased the bonefish over there in Exmouth as well with Brad? Or I have. Um, I was lucky enough. I think it might have been. So I've had three trips with them, and I think it was the maybe the 2015 or 16 um, on my last day. 
we'd been fishing on the golf side primarily. And he said, look, when he turned up, he said, uh, the, um, there's just no wind at all. We're never going to get close to the permit on the golf. The, the afternoon before, they were so spooky. Uh, there was not a ripple on the surface of the water, and you could see them. Uh, you could see the odd tail, the odd dorsal, but couldn't get near them. He said, how about we go out on the on the uh, Ningaloo Reef side, and we might see a bonefish, and, um, and uh, you never know, you might get a GT or something like that. And... Uh, I, I had a magic day. The water is so beautiful out there. I thought, wow, it was just such a pleasure to be there. And there was a slightly cool breeze coming in off the Indian Ocean. And then we found a, we we found some bonefish. And believe it or not, I landed three. And the first one, and he, he weighed each one of them, was a, a tad over 10. And uh, the next one was 12. And the one after that was 10. So I got three bonefish that were 10, 12, and 10. And... Um, and then a while later, there were a couple of fish swimming by, and I think we both said, it looks like a permit, and managed to get a cast in front of it and got a permit as well. So that was one of those days you remember. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's unreal, and especially mm. like bonefish of that calibre, um, mainland Australia. Like you see big bonefish over at Cocos Keeling Islands and that sort of thing, but for a mainland Australia fishery, um, yeah, Brett's certainly got it dialed over there. and. Um, yeah, I can't wait to get over there one day. Yeah, it's it's a it's a remarkable thing. It's a deeper water than um, than bonefish that I fish for in Cuba and places like that, and and um, and the Alphonse and the Seychelles. But uh, these were fish we could see. You know, we were we were casting a fish we could see and reasonably shallow, very clear water. Um, I yes, yeah. So it was it was wonderful. Mm. Yeah, and so on this last trip to Australia, you fished yeah, with Brett Wolf over in Exmouth, but you also did a trip with the guys from Aussie Fly Fisher to the Wessels. Yes. How was that? It was an extraordinary trip, uh, the, the Wessels trip. Uh, the, the weather forecast was not good as we left, and, um, and it proved to be entirely accurate. But I, I love being in the Wessels. It's such a remarkable part of the world so it was just such a pleasure to be up there and look at those really ancient islands i think the rock formations on those islands are 700 million years old and they predate life so there's no fossil life in the, in the rocks and you feel like uh, we spent a bit of time on the on the eastern side because the weather got kind of bad and we had to retreat from the western side to get away from the uh, from the uh, rough sea and on that eastern side, uh, fishing along those cliffs, it, it kind of looked like a Star Wars um, um, movie site, you know, just ancient and strange, and you expected something very odd to happen there. But as I said, we had thunderstorms and heavy rain and wind, and uh, it, it made the fishing extremely difficult. Um, but the overall experience was good. The people on the boat, the, the vessel was wonderful. The people on the boat were just a great bunch of people. So we had fun. Uh, uh, and I got a, uh, I got uh, broken off by a, um, a large uh, blue bastard and I landed possibly my biggest uh, blue bastard on that trip. Um, and I had just two or three shots of permit and just not really enough and not not, I wasn't zoned in really at the, at the time. Oddly enough, they came in off rays, which is uh, something the guys there said they hadn't seen very often. But the three that I saw were on rays, um, and I had a I had a 
a very large milkfish on for about 15 minutes and almost got to the point where I was starting to think this is going to be a great photograph. It was a beautiful, I've I've caught a couple of milkfish before, but this was by far the biggest that I'd had on. And it seemed like we'd done all the hard work and had it well and truly on the fly line. And we were just not far off the beach and it was close to us. And I think it sensed something in the water and it, it made a ferocious dash away from me and uh, ended up getting sharked. So it was uh, just a terrible, terrible end to that. So yeah, that was um, that was um, that was not nice. But uh, so I've got unfinished business in the whistles. I'd like to go back and fish some of the beautiful beaches I saw on the other side, the white sand, and um, I could just imagine how good the fishing could be. But um, while we were there, it was uh, very difficult. Uh, one of my American friends caught a permit on the last day. But you need you need visibility and you need you need uh, you need that sun for the bulk of the day, really, to give yourself a decent chance. And uh, and we didn't have that. Mm. Yeah. OK. And what other trips have you got coming up this year? I think you said you were heading off to the Seychelles. Yeah, well, if I, uh, yes, I'm going to the Seychelles in September so um, with a group of people, and I'm there for a couple of weeks, so that's uh, quite a long time. Um, but I've heard such good things about it, and it sounds like permit territory, and there's a lot of wading involved, and I kind of like wading to them. I've, I've um, caught some nice permit when I've been wading, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've definitely got another camping trip up the up the Cape again. We'll just keep that going until we're not, we're not able to do it anymore. Um, and um, I've been uh, lucky enough to book another trip. Actually, uh, uh, I'm heading back to Exmouth in um, just over a month. Uh, Brett had a, had a cancellation and I thought I'd just love to, love to have another crack. I'm trying to make up for the three years we lost to COVID, really. Mm. Yeah. Maybe, oh, that's excellent. Maybe Belize. Mm. Yep. Mm. Have you got any um, any bucket list species that have always been on your mind that you haven't targeted yet, or no, no? I think I've I think I've found the the place I want to be with permit. I, I must say I do I do rate blue bastards. I think they're a fantastic fish, and I um, it, when we started catching them and um, not in big numbers in uh, Weeper, um, I just thought they were they were fantastic and still do, and they. Um, and the ferocious uh, fighters as well, and that first uh, that first run that they make is something to behold. Especially the big guys, they're just so hard to turn. In fact, I made a rookie error and got my thumb in the way of the um, of my reel handle uh, on the one that uh, I think the one that I landed, and uh, I ended up with a blood blister behind the uh, behind my my nail and uh, and a pretty ugly looking thumb for the rest of the trip, but. Excuse me. I was pleased to have um, pleased to have got the uh, the BB. Yeah, uh, but no, I I think uh, I think not. I've caught I've caught I've caught a few tarpon, and I I love tarpon, but um, it's really permit permit for me. I mean, tarpon in some ways um, it's just such an extraordinary fish. But uh, those big guys, that's like that's more like a weightlifting exercise than a fishing exercise in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I uh, just the length of the fight, you know, I sometimes worry slightly about the fish. I mean, the people that do it well and do it often can land them very quickly. Um, and I, I've, I've landed a few, but I just don't 
think I've got I've had the experience to get them in just as fast as I'd feel comfortable about getting them in. I I, I know people, and I think I could go this way, and that's just hook them and uh, have a have a fairly light uh, piece in the, in, in your uh, leader section and just break them off pretty quickly. Um, yeah, just a sacrificial part of the tip. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, circling back to, um, we've covered a fair bit in the salt yeah, boy, and yeah. it's it's you've definitely put in the time and effort with the permit, and it reflects with how many you've caught and the destinations that you've gone to. Um, if we go back to your book now, mm. Upstream on the Matara, when did you start planning that trip? Around um, around 2015-16, uh, Josh, I, I'd, I'd started to think that um, I, I really regretted that nobody had written about the river uh, in my early days, so, so sometime 50 years or 70 years uh, ago. Um, that the river has kind of been ignored by writers. And I think it, it uh, in my view, uh, the Matara, if you include the tributaries as well, the Waikaya and all the tributaries that run into it. So that makes up maybe, I would think, closing on 350, 400 kilometres of fishing, that it has to be one of the 10 great um, uh, dry fly brown trout fisheries on the planet. Now, that's a hugely subjective thing, and I'm pretty biased about it. But I, I, I wanted to leave a record. I started to think that it would be nice to leave a record of what the river has meant to one person that's um, had a lifetime really connected to it. I, and after I'd written a few magazine articles, I thought as I got older, well, if not me, who is going to do it? Maybe, maybe, I, maybe this is... This is the task that I have to write something almost like a love letter to the river, um, um, an expression of just how much it's meant to me. So it, it formed about then, as, as I said earlier, I was accumulating some stories about the river, but I realized it needed a heart to it. It needed something else. And uh, I picked up a book by Tom McGuane that he did with a photographer, and in it, I just saw a quote. He's writing about uh, the fact that in, in a lifetime, it's really only possible to know one river really well, and then perhaps only a part of a river, part of that river intimately. And I thought, even though the Matara is not the Mississippi or something like that, it's a big river. It's quite a big river. I think it's that fifth longest river, uh, two, 220 or so kilometers long. Um, and it changes quite dramatically from a from a just a mountain brook to a beautiful uh, freestone trout river to something in its lower reaches, which is quite different again, a big estuarine river, um, quite a big volume of water pushing down through very well-established banks with uh, not so many gra gravel beaches and so on. And I thought that one way of tying all that together would be to walk the river as a kind of tribute to the river, if you like. Um, and I, I thought for a while about the direction I would take, whether I would start up in the mountains and where, it, where its birthplace was and follow its course all the way to the sea. But in the end, for a variety of reasons, I decided I'd walk from the coast and uh, follow it um, upstream uh, into, the, into the air mountains where it starts. And I thought if I wrote, if I walked it, took notes, I talked into my phone quite a bit as I walked. 
I camped beside it some some nights, some nights I stayed in little hotels and huts and things like that. Mostly I walked its banks, sometimes I was on a road beside it, but I was never far from the river. Um, uh, and I thought some stories would sort of naturally flow from that, and they did. I, so I was reminded of days when I was in those different parts of the river, it brought, brought back memories, so I, I reflected on that. And um, yeah, so it, in the end, it became the, the heart of the book. So that's the first part of the book was my, was my walk in, um, in 2017, which took me a couple of weeks to, to complete. So I was doing about, I thought initially I could, uh, I, I'm not sure what the hell I was thinking. I thought I could do perhaps 30 kilometers a day. And uh, a South African friend said, that's just not possible. It doesn't make any sense. He said, you want to be able to reflect on, on what you're doing and not um, not to be rushing from place to place. Uh, you need to be able to sit under a willow from time to time and just contemplate the river. And he was absolutely right. But also, even though this is not, um, at least in the lower reaches, mountain country, it's, it's tough walking because um, there is, there's no track and you, so you're, you're constantly up and down banks in the lower reaches. I couldn't cross it very easily. So sometimes I was stuck on the wrong bank for quite a long time, bashing my way through willows and scrub. And um, I think one day I reckon I climbed under about 80 electric fences um, and I got more than my share of zaps from them. Um, uh, so I found it much more exhausting than, than I thought it would be. I... Um, I started off carrying a fly rod, and I had this kind of dream that I would uh, catch a fish each day, but I pretty quickly realized I, I didn't have time for it. And um, on top of that, I started to appreciate just looking up, not looking into the river so much as just taking the whole thing in. And um, and uh, so it's a different, just a different look. And um, by the time I, I reached the, uh, towards the, top end of the river I felt like I, I was just loving it I felt like you know my feet were my feet had had, um, had uh, come into the right sort of form I was I got fitter as I walked and I was it was such a an extraordinary experience uh, getting close to the river like that and listening to it watching it chuckling by uh, that I thought I could go on forever you know I just it was it was a I felt quite lost when I finished actually I came home and I was um probably a bit difficult to be with for a few days I just felt so um so lost yeah I sort of lost you know lost um uh and then about um yeah so the whole and and I walked it by myself largely my one of my old angling mates uh walked with me on the last day and uh, we we got a long way into the mountains I, I I had a I had a slight sense that I could have gone further, and that nagged at me a little bit. So about a, almost exactly a year ago, I went back into the very top with a, another friend, and we we clambered our way um, up waterfalls and um, crashed our way through bush uh, into the uh, a basin uh, below Air Peak, and um, and uh, where the little Matara was just sort of bouncing off the off a cliff and coming down and uh, the big it was the absolute beginning of it and even though it was hard work and i i skinned myself several times i felt like um i felt like it was worth it just to be able to say yeah look i did go right to the 
right to the very tip of it. Um, but it made me reflect quite a lot on my angling and what it meant to me. I had lots of time to think about my fishing, about the river, the connection with people, a bit like the McLean book, really, you know, a river runs through it. That sense of a river running through your life. I mean, my I have a brother and my father and grandparents and so on buried um, at a cemetery in Gore overlooking the river. And these are all sort of poignant things for me. And um, um, I developed a real sense of awe. I think it's always, I think it's been there with me, but I, as I've got older, I've become more reflective about the way I look at rivers and water. And I think in many ways, I cherish the experiences I have near water more than I ever have. I, I don't quite have the can't sleep at night excitement that I had when I was a eight-year-old waiting on the season to to start where I could hardly sleep. It was like Christmas and my birthday all rolled into one. I got so excited by it. But I, I feel a depth of um, feeling now for the for the water and the fish and the mountains and, the, and that um, landscape of my happiness that uh, partly because um, it's not a morbid sense of my own mortality, but I realize that um, you know, I'm, I'm in the at, at that latest stage of my life, and it's it really adds a, a degree of uh, real appreciation. I, I don't take uh, much for granted. I was fishing yesterday, actually, in a different part of the country in central Otago, up in the mountains, in a kind of a no-name little stream and high tussock country mountains around me, and just enough uh, beautiful rainbow, big rainbows, and a few big browns to keep me occupied and uh, I, I landed a few and then I thought yeah, that's enough you know they those big fish they fight so hard and those small streams you kind of um, almost feel sorry for them so I thought I'd harass them enough and I turned around and I walked back and and to be perfectly honest I mean the walk maybe wouldn't have been as good if I hadn't caught a fish or two but it was it, the walk was wonderful you know reflecting on the on, on the hills and the river and the sound of it and the, the beauty of it. So for me, in a way, uh, that's what fly fishing's done for me. It's been that connection with the natural world, which I think all of us who, who fish in a way feel that, even if they don't necessarily express it, even to themselves. It's, a, it's such a privilege, really, Josh. I think, um, like, I definitely find that on my days off lately. I've been taking my float tube out quite a bit on the river locally, and it's just nice to put the phone in the pocket, not worry about it, get away from people, enjoy the river, enjoy the fishing, the scenery. And, like, even sometimes I'll just be kicking along and I won't even be casting. I'll just be looking at, like, a kingfisher that's landed on a branch or maybe, like, an yeah. lungfish, which is yeah. one of our ancient yeah. fish over here, coming up and taking a breath of air. And it's just – I think it's good for the soul. Like, I find for me – um working in fishing tackle retail i absolutely love talking to people about fishing every day but by the end of the week you're pretty over talking and you need some alone time and i think sometimes it can help you reflect on your own life and how you want to be as a person and an angler and that sort of thing and having those special times on the river um i think it's yeah it, it does wonders for for everyone i i think it does i mean for me it's been a real therapy in many ways it's a, such a meditative thing uh, if i'm walking up a stream for example it's uh, hugely it, I, I just get lost in it lost in the in the in the in the overall experience and so the the other things that might intrude on your life tend to just wash away and uh 
that's that's a kind of a rare thing in a busy world and it's same with permit fishing i'm it's a very rare day for me when i'm not just absolutely focused on the water and i might by the end of the day be feel pretty beaten up and humiliated and um wondering why i continue to do this but i find myself at six o'clock next morning um just can't wait to get out there again and uh, go through the the process um and on that on that last trip with with brett i um i i my my fishing style was a bit different to i think what he would have wanted me to be doing and i was uh, i was using a, a what i thought was a very slow long strip when i thought the permit was on the fly and i just wasn't i think paying enough attention to the current and, and i think what we were doing what i was doing was just lifting the fly off the bottom a little bit so the permit would you, you think he was going to take it it's right there and then the last minute just sort of snap away from it as though you know there was a bomb attached to it and um so i was i was got grumpy with myself and on that last day uh, last couple of days i thought no i'm going to absolutely do what he what he's been telling me to do and he was dead right that this um uh, just these tiny little tiny little uh, slow jumps or little short slow strips um were the thing and i think it just meant that the fly stayed on the bottom and um i was lucky enough on the on the last day we hardly saw a fish and um and then we saw a big one um, sliding away from us uh, tailing um sticking its head into the sand every now and again popping its tail out it was a beautiful fish and we couldn't we were struggling to get close enough to it it just kept moving slowly away and and brett was using his um mincota to try and stay in stay with it but didn't want to have to put too much uh, power into that for fear we were going to scare it and he finally said look i think um this is as good as it's going to get what do you reckon and i had um, a long backhand shot you know sort of right at the end of my range really and to be perfectly honest nine times out of ten it wouldn't have worked but while the fly was in the air he said oh did you see a tail and um and I could tell right from the delivery, everything felt sort of right. And the fly line landed just behind it and quite a long fish and quite a long leader. And the leader went over, over its back and the fly landed in front of it. And it just tipped straight down and grabbed it and ran. And it was, um, wow, the best block I've seen in a long time. It was just a fabulous fish. And, um, I, I said to Brett at the time, I'll, I'll never forget those those moments, you know, those just complete magic, really um, hard to replicate. But um, I'll, I'll, um, I'll live on that for a while. Mm. Yeah. And that's one of those things like you can walk a river on your own and enjoy the solitude. But then you can have those special moments with a um, top notch guide like Brett at the bow or mm. Bargy with you sort of thing. Um, and you get to share that moment with the guide. Well, exactly. And, you know, that's one of the cool things for me because all pretty much all of my trout fishing I do unguided by myself. I mean, I fish for trout in Kamchatka and Alaska and places like that. But uh, 99% of it, I'm 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 just doing it myself and i work out where i'm going to go and and i and i like that and i totally appreciate the permits different i don't have a boat i don't have the skills to operate a boat um 
I think I've been in Cape York enough to know the kind of places where we might find permit and how they how they move with the tide and so on. But it is it's a two person game, you know. It's it's a guide and an angler in sync, and um, and um, you need somebody who who can who's got fantastic eyes and who knows the water like the back of their hand. And and can get the boat in the right place for you, and um, so I appreciate that. I, I I I definitely try to be humble about catching permit because it's not it's not just um, the bloke with the fly rod or the person, the woman with the fly rod, who who gets the job done. So I totally acknowledge that, and and the and the great guides that I've had over the years. But equally, in trout fishing, I. Um, I, I was lucky enough to have some mentors, some people that I fished with in my early years with a fly rod that I just learned so much from. They were good enough to take me fishing, and often they'd have me fishing behind them, which seems like an odd thing, but I, I enjoyed that because I could watch them and see what they were doing. And there's a guy, Bill McClay, who a Scot, who briefly lived in Australia. Some, some of your listeners might remember Bill. He was there a long time ago. He's been dead for some years now. He died too young. One of the great fly fishers for trout that I've ever seen anywhere, anytime. So you need people that are that lift the bar for you. And uh, Fish Felliskirk was the same. You know, he just he was uh, he was uh, on my case if, um, if 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 I wasn't performing. Sometimes to the point where I could feel my shoulders tightening right up, thinking uh, I was almost frightened to make a cast. But um, you get there in the end, and we're good mates now. It's it's wonderful. And I think having those sort of people around you that have got either a bit more experience or, um, yeah, I guess you'd probably say a bit more experience that you can learn from and grow as an angler because it's sort of if you're surrounding yourself with people that are just sort of on par with you, I guess, it's hard to learn. Um, Whereas when you've got people like Fish that has so much experience, has fished all over the world, knows his fishery intimately, um, it's a lot easier to pick up those skills. Yeah, exactly. We, I mean, we all need that, and um, and I'm conscious maybe that that's an area that I don't do enough of myself. You know, being being with younger people and uh, and taking them fishing, and I've done that a little bit, but I think I could do more. So there's all there are always things you can do to to be to be a better person, really, because you know whether you're permit fishing or trout fishing, there's a kind of honesty in the whole thing as well. I mean. No matter how much money you've got or how good you think you are, you're only as good as the fish kind of um, are prepared to accept. And uh, and with permit and often with trout, you know, it's uh, it's demanding. And if you, it's just you can't talk your way into catching catching a permit or a or a, or a trout in a difficult circumstance. You've got to be able to execute it, and um, and that's what I love about it, really. Mm. Yeah, and it's one of those things, there's no rock stars in fly fishing or fishing in general, but it's more so the decisions that you make as a person that make you a good person and helping pass on information to other anglers. And I think there's a lot to be said for people that are willing to help. Like I know um, people like Rod Harrison here in Australia, he's been exceptional at passing down information to the younger generation. And even now he'll still give me a call every month and just see how I'm going and tell me some old stories and that. And I learn something every time I talk to him and I really appreciate those conversations. So I think, as you said, it's, there's definitely something in giving back to other fly fishers and um, enhancing their experiences. Oh, for sure. And the people that write about uh, some of those experiences are, are helpful as well. Although, you know, it's a changing world, isn't it? And now a lot of it's on social media and so on. And that's partly a good thing, but it can be a bad thing as well because there's, 
I find, for example, with with permit, um, often it makes it look as though everybody's catching permit uh, on a regular basis, and of course they're not, and that's that's not the game, and it's a it's a sort of dishonest portrayal of the of the game. Really, people need to accept that um, it's tough, and even if you're really good, um, one permit every two or three days is 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 um, is really good fishing and um, and you have to accept humiliation and defeat and that's also good good for us as we get older yeah I think a lot of people with social media now it's that they're seeking that instant gratification sort of thing a lot of people don't see the um, the time and hours that goes into pursuing a species or trying to work out a fishery. Um, so, yeah, as you said, it can be a bit misleading sometimes. It's a, it's a nice thing about writing, I think, that you can, you can, you can lay the story out more effectively. Even, even on film, it's hard to capture because often you're limited to 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something like that, and it, it makes it look like it's all action. And, and permit fishing, for example, isn't all action. And, and the thing I like about trout fishing is the, often the slow beauty of it. And that slow beauty of the cast. I mean, there's something wonderful about uh, casting a fly rod, and the equipment we use is just, uh, you know, we 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 do these things not to make life easier for ourselves, but to add beauty to the whole process, really, and more fun ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is probably a um, a good point to wrap things up in our conversation. I've really enjoyed getting to know a bit more about your life on the river and especially too, um, your journeys with chasing permit and the saltwater side of things as well, because there's a lot of guys that I know that they'll just fixate on trout and that sort of thing, and it's great to see that you've you've done a bit of everything, really. Um, if anyone wants to pick up a copy of your book, Upstream on the Matara, I know that Fly Life, their online store, still has a few copies. Um, Peter Morse also has a couple of copies left on his Wildfish website, so people can jump on there. And I think you said earlier too that Amazon, you can pick up a Kindle version on there too. So I'd highly recommend it to anyone that wants to um, hear a bit more about your story to jump on, grab a copy where they can. I know there'll be a few little bookshops here or there that might have some stock because I know I've thoroughly enjoyed the um, the story so far that I've read. And I think talking to you today as well, getting to um, have a bit of a chat face-to-face over over this has been good to um, yeah cement a few of those things for me as well. Look, it's it's been a real pleasure to to talk to you, Josh, and uh, thanks for the opportunity and um, for the chance to talk about the about the book, but more particularly about um, what fly fishing and fishing generally has meant to me as a person. And uh, um, yeah, I, I um, yeah, that's that's what I feel most of all, just that sense of gratitude that this is a game that I've been part of and. Um, um, yeah, I have respect for the people in it. And yeah, so thank you very much for the, for the opportunity. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Dougal. But I, um, I'll definitely be keeping in touch with you and I look forward to seeing some photos from this Seychelles trip and your next Weeper trip. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. I look forward to it. Okay. Thanks, mate. See you, Josh. Bye. Mm-hmm.